Are you looking for a new basketball shoe? If so, this is Gary Parrish here to tell you that the New Balance 2-Way V4 features the groundbreaking use of fuel cell technology with fresh foam creating the ultimate combination of rebound and cushioning. Every step feels explosive and dynamic, and the upper construction features a lightweight textile that's supportive and breathable. So whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the 2-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the 2-Way at newbalance.com. Hey there, it's Gary Parish. It's Friday, February 11th, 2022. Welcome back to the CBS Sports I Own College Basketball Podcast, where we sometimes discuss camel fighting, dodo birds, and leaky black. David Cobb is here with me. And please note that the I Own College Basketball Podcast is presented by Jersey Mike's, which is a proud sponsor of the Naismith Award. Jersey's Mike's would like to offer congratulations to all the athletes on this season's Naismith Watch list and we're going to get to that Naismith watch list in just a little bit by the way if you're watching on YouTube hey YouTube hey YouTube please smash that like button like your Brandon Davis it's right in front of you it doesn't cost you nothing but it sure would mean a lot to us so if you're watching on YouTube thank you for doing that smash the like button while you're here and also go ahead if you haven't done it yet subscribe to the Ion College Basketball Podcast here on YouTube just hit that subscribe button it matters help us out with that we thank you in advance all right the most notable result from Thursday night, it happened in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Final score, unranked Michigan, 82, number three, Purdue, 58. Two days after beating Illinois by 16, Purdue loses to Michigan by 24. Um, this season, uh, Minnesota and Seton Hall have both won at Michigan, but Purdue could not get that done. David Cobb, is the story here that Purdue got drilled, or is the story that Michigan is six and two in its past eight games and quietly turning the corner after a rough start. I mean, I think the story here in, in Michigan still being on the bubble after this loss, great for them. But the story to me is, is what you've been saying for a while. And I think what a lot of people who've been paying close attention have noticed, which is that Purdue's defense is, is very flawed. And, and, to his credit, Matt Painter certainly did not dance around that last night. I mean, I think they're well aware of this. But, I mean, to put it in perspective, Maryland gave up 110 points to Iowa last night and is actually ranked ahead of Purdue in Ken Palm's defensive efficiency as of this morning. That paints up a pretty bleak picture, in my opinion, of the uh, the Purdue defense. And you could you could excuse it. You could explain it when they were losing games by, you know, one possession like they did at Rutgers or, you know, whatever. But when you go out and get blasted by 24, I think it, it raises that issue to the forefront of the conversation. You know, er, er, earlier in the week, uh, Matt Norlander, who has not been permanently replaced on the Iron College Basketball Podcast, by the way, he's just taken a personal day today. And uh, so he, he'll be with me on Sunday night, I, I assume. Um we were talking about national title contenders. It might have been on Sunday night's, last Sunday night's podcast. And we were running through him, and he was making me say yes or no, like this is a legitimate national title contender. Gonzaga, yes. Kentucky, yes. Ohio State, no. So on and so forth. And I got to Purdue, and I said yes. And then we went back and tried to trim it down to like eight, eight teams. And I did ultimately have Purdue in there, I think. But I almost left them out. And the reason I almost left them out is because I don't want to say you can't win a national championship with a defense like this. I'm just telling you, it's very, very difficult. 
it's even difficult to make the final four with a defense like this. I don't care how great you are offensively. Like Michigan on Thursday night shot 51.6% from the field and 57.1% from three against Purdue. And now Purdue is ranked 126th in adjusted defensive efficiency, according to Ken Palm. That is incredibly bad for a team that is trying to get to the Final Four for the first time since 1980. I, I went and looked this up um, this morning just to pr- provide some context. I went and, and grabbed the, the last five Final Fours. So it's 20 different teams that have made the Final Four over the past five years, if my math is correct. And I went and looked at their adjusted defensive efficiency ratings, according to Ken Palm. And here's what I got. Last season's Final Four teams were ninth, 11th, 22nd, and 46th in adjusted defensive efficiency. The 46th was UCLA, which went for the first four to the Final Four. We didn't have a tournament um, in 2020. So we go to 2019. The Final Four teams were first, fifth, ninth, and 36th in adjusted defensive efficiency. 2018, the Final Four teams were third, 11th, 17th, and 47th in adjusted defensive efficiency. 2017, the Final Four teams were first, third, 11th, and 17th in adjusted defensive efficiency. And then in 2016, the Final Four teams were fifth, 17th, 18th, and 21st in adjusted defensive efficiency. So that's five Final Fours, 20 teams, literally nobody ranked outside of the top 50. And uh, it's important to note that these are final season ratings. So it stands to reason that most of these teams, if not all of these teams, improved their adjusted defensive efficiency number as they ran to the final four. But either way, the point remains the same. They all finished in the top 50 in adjusted defensive efficiency. Purdue is 126. And so, again, I'm not saying you can't get there with this defense. Nothing's impossible, I guess. I'm just saying teams don't usually get there with defenses like this. Yeah, I I went through this exact same rabbit hole. What I was looking at, though, was just purely national champions. And I went back to the beginning of of Ken Palm's data. And Baylor, at 22 last year, unless I'm reading this wrong, that's the worst defensive efficiency that's ever won a national title. (laughs) And they were 22. Right. Which, you know, seems as light years away from where Purdue is. And most of them are single digits. In fact, you got a handful that are that are number one. The 2013 Louisville defense was number one. The 2008, you know, Kansas defense, number one uh, in, in defensive efficiency rating. So I, I don't know what to tell you. Like I said, Ken, you know, Ken Palm doesn't go out there and play defense for you. You can go out there and, and you know, find something if you're Purdue. I don't want to cast it as though it's impossible for Purdue to overcome this, I think that's silly because the computers don't decide things, but they are telling the data is interesting. And it, it, it should be taken into consideration here that Purdue could be a, could be a first weekend flame out if they get the wrong matchup. I mean, I, 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 they don't play that well away from home sometimes. And depending on who they draw, you know, that, that first weekend in that second round game and what would probably end up being a, you know, a seven seed or an eight seed or, or a nine seed or whatever, you know, that, that team could, you know, could sneak up on them. The, 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 the comparison I've consistently made is to last season's Iowa team. Mm-hmm. Um, because p- people were pretty dismissive of Iowa as a legitimate championship contender. 
because terrific offensively, got the best player in the country. That's all true, but the defense is terrible. And you just can't, you can't, you're not going to win a national championship with that defense. And I think the reason people were so quick to attach that label to Iowa is because Iowa has a history of being really good offensively and not so good defensively. So it was easy to slap that on them. Oh, I've seen this story before. Um, With Purdue, people have been more hesitant to attach that exact same label to them for the exact same reason. They've been good at defense in the past. Right. they've They've had good defensive teams. Right, and I think that's why, or at least among the reasons why, people aren't talking about this Purdue team the way they talked about last season's Iowa team. But the truth is that Iowa team last season was third in offensive efficiency and 75th in defensive efficiency. Iowa last season was significantly better defensively than this Purdue team is. And what happened to that Iowa team? They did more or less what a lot of people thought they would do, which is – get eliminated before the final four in the NCAA tournament. In fact, they lost in the second round. They got blasted by Oregon while giving up 95 points. They lost 95 to 80 in the second round of the NCAA tournament. I'm not predicting a similar fate for Purdue. I just think it's interesting right now, if you try, or at least before last night, if you try to stand up and say, I don't think Purdue's not getting to the, if you said it this definitively, Purdue's not getting to the final four because they stink defensively and you can't get there with a defense like that. You'd have got a lot of pushback. What do you mean? They got Jaden Ivy. They just beat Illinois. Um, they're awesome offensively. They looked the part. People would have pushed back on you. But when you said the same thing about Iowa last season, people didn't really push back. And this Purdue team is worse than that Iowa team on the defensive end of the court. It's just a, an interesting thing that I think is worth um, you know, we've, we've been sort of following it on this podcast for a while now. I, this is a point that I'm not making for the first time, um, but it is worth following as, as the season progresses. Purdue is obviously um, terrific in a lot of ways, but that defense, man, that is a, yeah. that, that, that's a, a real fundamental flaw that, that could lead to exactly what you just suggested, which is an early, an early exit for the NCAA yeah. tournament. Matt Painter last night, I got a quote from him. We had breakdowns in ball screen defense. We had breakdowns containing the bounce. We had breakdowns when we were supposed to double. And we had breakdowns when we were supposed to trap in the post. I could go on for a long time with that. So they know. They, they, they know that that is the issue now. Right. I mean, how do you fix it? That's, that's the thing. How do you, you know, is it possible for a team that's terrible defensively on February 11th to be significantly better on March 11th. Like we've been talking about this all season. You know, the season starts in November. It's February. And they just haven't, whatever the problems are. And I remember Matt talking about this very early in the season, like when they took their first loss. You know, Matt, you know, he's never hit from this. If he were listening right now, he wouldn't be offended or bothered by what I'm saying. He'd probably be nodding and saying, you know, I I know what you know. He's a smart guy and a great basketball coach. Um, you know, is it possible to fix this stuff, you know, by the time you need it to get fixed? Maybe, maybe, but yeah, eh. here's what I'm hoping for. If I'm Purdue, I bet in some ways it can be difficult to communicate the urgency of the defensive struggles to a team that for the most part is just being universally praised. If you're, you know, Jade Nivey, Trevion Williams, Zach Eady, everybody on that roster, you're hearing a lot of, a lot of good things about yourself. Over the course of this season, you're smoking some teams. Jaden Ivey's in the lottery conversation. You know, Edie and Williams are uh, two of the best bigs in the country, and they probably hear that quite a bit, and it's true. Uh, 
when you lose games by two points and you lose once every couple of weeks and you're in the, the top five in the country and you're in the running for a number one seed, I mean, it can be difficult, I would imagine, uh, to really communicate the urgency of certain areas of improvement, you know, to a roster that for the most part is, is really excelling, you know, at what they're meant to do. But now maybe last night in that loss, maybe it can be a wake up call of sorts. Hey, hey, guys, <laughs> we, we just lost by 24 points to a Michigan team that wasn't even on the bubble, according to Jerry Palm, entering the game last night. So maybe maybe this could be a turning point. If, if I was going to take a positive approach right. to Purdue's predicament, that would maybe be the way I would spin it. Um, and I don't know the, the locker room dynamics there. I don't know if that's the case, but just from thinking of it from a human motivational standpoint, like, I mean, th- in their three losses before last night, they'd lost by a combined 10 points. So, you know, if I'm, if I'm a player on that team, am I really, do I really buy that we're deeply flawed until I see it in a way like I saw it last night? I don't know. Maybe, maybe now that that'll open their eyes and, and kind of uh, increase the sense of urgency to get better defensively. Well, every good coach I know takes moments like last night and uses them to um, reinforce points they've probably been trying to, to make. Um, that's why sometimes you hear a coach, you know, the team starts 14-0 and or 17-0, and and then they take a loss, and you'll hear a coach say, sometimes we needed that. You know, we needed that. They don't want to lose, but – you try to find the positive in losing. All right, now maybe they'll listen to me when I say, okay, we, we're winning, we're winning, great, but this is going to catch up to us at some point. This issue that I'm stressing to you is going to get us at some point. You know, when you're dealing with a team that is enjoying a lot of success, um, you know, I, I don't want to speak for the Purdue players, but I can just broadly speaking, you know, I, I can understand how a 19-year-old or a 21-year-old basketball player would be like, hey, all right, coach, we, we, got, we're, we, we hear you, but we're fine. And then you get smacked the way you got smacked last night. And maybe, you know, whatever the coaching staff is stressing today on that end of the court, perhaps it'll resonate a little better than it was this time yesterday because, you know, they got embarrassed uh, last night by a Michigan team, as you noted, um, wasn't really even on the bubble before last night's game. But, and this will be a place to transition to the Wolverines, I think they probably are now, or they're at least getting close to it. You know, this is a team that started 7-7 seven and seven overall, 1-3 and three in the Big Ten. They took losses to Minnesota and UCF. And now they're 13-9 and nine overall, 7-5 and five in the Big Ten. They got wins over Purdue, Indiana, San Diego State. You know, they're two and five in quadrant one, three and three in quadrant two. So five and eight in the first two quadrants with a quad three loss to Minnesota. I don't think that gets you there yet, but you're back in the game. You know, you're back, you're back inching in the right direction. Like I said earlier, six and two in the past eight. And uh, among the reasons, it's interesting. I I guess this isn't, maybe this isn't interesting at all. Maybe this is just obvious. But when they were struggling early, it was like, you know, the very simple, What's wrong with Michigan? The, the simple answer was Hunter Dickinson is back for his sophomore year, and he hasn't really taken a jump. You know, he just kind of looks uh, like the same player. He's producing at, you know, more or less the same level. And the two five-star freshmen um, aren't playing like five-star freshmen. And so they when sure you did lose, last night. They sure did last night. That's my point. When you lose what Michigan lost, and then you are 
replacing it with five-star freshmen, the only way to maintain what you were or improve is for the five-star freshmen to play like five-star freshmen. And they didn't at the beginning of the season, but they did last night. And Hunter Dickinson played like a different player last night. He got 22 points, nine rebounds against that uh, Zach Eady, Trevion Williams front line. And he's been on a real tear lately. Past five games, Hunter Dickinson is averaging 24 points and eight rebounds. On the season, he's now averaging 18.3 points, 8.3 rebounds. So why is Michigan suddenly a different team? A lot of different reasons. But among them, Hunter Dickinson has taken it up a level, and the two five-star freshmen are starting to uh, play. Uh, they're, they're, they're not just good prospects anymore. They've become good, good college basketball players. Purdue, Purdue's defense was so bad last night, Gary, that they made Hunter Dickinson look like Jaron Jackson Jr. <laughs> hitting threes out there. No, um, and he's shooting a, a not bad percentage. From the, he obviously doesn't take a lot of them, but he's made that shot uh, this season. So, again, uh, I don't want to pretend to be Jerry Palm. Um, I'll let him. First up. four in, by the way. I just pulled it up. I, they were they were not on the bubble last night. This morning, Palm's got them first four in. He, so he's got them um, last four the last, in or first last, last, last four, four in. in. Yeah, yeah, got it. Okay, so th- there you go. Uh, they're, you know, According to Jerry Palm, they're now – on the correct side of the bubble, um, which is, I don't want to say amazing, but not something I think we would have predicted, you know, when they were seven and seven overall, one and three in the big 10, it looked like, you know, this might just be a a Michigan team that goes down as one of the biggest disappointments in the country, start the season preseason top 10. Um, But now um, they've got it headed in the right direction and uh, congrats, Michigan fans. You're now in the field of 68 as projected, by the great Jerry Palm. A Clemson player nearly killed a Duke player Thursday night. We're going to get into that next. But first, a word from our sponsors. We're here. Let's go save some lives. Wow. Is that safe? This isn't an easy mission. And there may be a few surprises. Come on. This is where I get to say I was born ready. I'm going to figure this thing out, whatever it takes. It's going to be close. We do our best work when it's close. The all-new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped with everything you need to break free from the dull work week and embark on an adventurous weekend with your family. The Hyundai Santa Fe's features like available H-Track all-wheel drive, standard third-row seating, available dual wireless charging pads. You've got the H-Track all-wheel drive so you can take on those dirt trails and kick up some mud. Or the third-row seating gets your whole family in to experience the thrill together. The dual wireless charging pads make sure that no one gets stuck in the great outdoors with a dead cell phone. Think about those adventurous activities you can do, like me taking a ski trip up with the family, maybe going on a camping expedition, anything and everything. Learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. 
So a Clemson player nearly killed a Duke player on Thursday night. Duke won the game 82-64 at Little John Coliseum, but the story was the David Collins-Wendell Moore incident. David, I, I know you saw it. What'd you make of it? Uh, yeah, that was scary. Yeah. Um, all right, all right. So so nobody's buying the Collins apology. Nobody, nobody's buying it. I, I want to play the role of his defense attorney here for a second mm -hmm. and explain how maybe – uh, if you look at it with the right camera angle and put yourself in his shoes, like maybe you can start to understand how that happened. And I, I you know, the, the outcome of the play is indefensible. The correct call was made. He deserved to be ejected for what happened and nobody will ever know his true motive. Uh, but I know he's apologized. I know he tried to defuse the situation in the moment and I know he's still getting a lot of crap, you know, from really everybody. Uh, on social media, but he he did an apology last night. So so I'm going to read this real quick. Okay, mm -hmm. he says I was going to try to block it from behind, but I was going too fast and I couldn't stop. I realized I needed to stop when it was too late. I've never been a dirty player, never will. I wish bro a healthy season, and I never tried to hurt anybody. But I know everyone is entitled to their own opinion. I have respect towards Duke and Clemson, and I apologize to everybody for a reckless play. And then I think he said, I'm glad he was okay. Yep. So it seems genuine enough. Whether you buy it or not, I think uh, if you look at it from like that vertical over-the-top angle instead of the side angle, you can kind of see how Wendell Moore veered back towards the center of the lane to complete the dunk. And I think kind of interrupted that – you know, Collins was maybe going to go in for that last second swipe as as Moore was gathering to rise and dunk, but then Moore just like careens towards the center of the lane, and so so maybe uh you know David Collins, uh in that that path he thought he was going to have to run underneath him is suddenly erased. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading way too much into this. I just I just wanted to throw that out there as a potential defense for for David Collins. Well, it's interesting because. Um, I was flying last night uh, back from New York, and I caught all of this on social media. And I have, even at this moment, I had seen his apology. I've got it in my notes here. I had not seen the reaction to his apology. I, I had no idea what the reaction to his apology was. So you're telling me people weren't buying it, that people were still killing him. <laughs> yes. What's interesting is that I'm on the same page with you here. When I read the apology, I immediately went back and watched the play from multiple angles. And that's what it looked like to me. It looked like he was running very fast and he didn't stop. Now, it was a dangerous play. I think David called it a reckless play. Um, he deserved to be ejected from the game. But I don't think it was a dirty play. I think it was a dangerous play and a reckless play. I, when I first saw it, I was like, yo, man, because it, it seemed like – you got stripped. Now you're frustrated. Dirty play. That's what it looked like to me at first. But then when I read his explanation and then went back and watched it, I was like, that's kind of what it, that's what it, that's what it looks like. It looks like he was, because if you look, he didn't shove him. You know, we've seen those before, like, you know, reach out, shove, you know, that's now that's dirty and dangerous, dirty and reckless. He did not push him. He, he really just sort of ran. Yeah, he just sort of ran under, ran through him. Right. It was almost like if you could think, Wendell Moore is going up for a dunk, 
and and David Collins ran through him like he's a finish line of a race. That's almost what it looked like. But he didn't push him with his arms or grab him. Um, he just he sort of ran. Th- he looked like somebody who couldn't stop running. It, it, and, it was too it was too clumsy to be overtly malicious. That, I'm with you. That's that. Uh, so I, as you tell me, people don't aren't buying it. I was like, huh, that's interesting because I buy it completely. Like that is what it looked like to me. And you know, last night when I saw it initially, before the explanation slash apology, um, I was like, ejected and probably needs to be suspended. And now I'm like, ejected, sure, um, but apologized to Wendell on social media, provided an explanation for what happened. There's no history of this stuff with him, far as I know, and um, and also went over and apologized to Mike Shashevsky. And like gave him a hug, said, I'm sorry, that's on me. Um, I, you know, Which, it, like, can it, we just stop for a second? Would, would, in any other circumstance, would any other opposing coach have received an on court apology from the offending player other than <laughs> I know. Coach K? I did think it was uh, uh, unique for sure. But like, he's Coach K. I don't know if you heard it's his final season, last trip to Little John. So maybe it was appropriate. Either way, I guess before the apology and before I saw it from a different perspective, I was like, probably needs to be suspended. Now, if you put me in charge, he'd be eligible to play the next game. Like Garrett, it, Garrett, it, it happened. It's, it should be over. Another hypothetical for you. Mm-hmm. Um, let's say this had transpired with uh, Grayson Allen as yep. the offending player. How many co- pieces of content would we have up on <laughs> CBS sports right now about, about the play? Um, a lot. I, that year, Grayson Allen content was like among the most clicked on content for college basketball. Like the, the best thing you could do is put Grayson Allen's name in a headline. But um, and I, I do think this is important uh, to note. If, the, if Grayson Allen does that last night to a player, I'm not buying it. I'm saying, OK, you didn't shove him, but you ran through him. You got a history right. of stuff like this. That's not cool. Um, I do think your past um, provides context for how we should perceive something. And um, David Collins, again, to my knowledge, has no history of this. I've never heard or read David Collins is a dirty player. And so (laughs) given that, honestly, I haven't heard much about David Collins or read much about David (laughs) Collins, uh, anything. He could be the the most amazing young man in the world or or the opposite. I, I don't have any idea. I'm just saying that doesn't appear to be a narrative connected to him in any way whatsoever. And so I'll, I'll take him at his word because um, a, I think he deserves the benefit of the doubt given the way that he handled the situation and B his explanation actually um, makes sense to me. Yeah. I mean, and it's also fathomable uh, that, you know, uh, it, it was, even if there was ill intent, the immediate remorse, I think, also counts for something. Sure. And I'm glad that he was immediately remorseful because I think the reaction that we're seeing and the uh, the distrust of his apology and all that is purely a reaction to the the magnitude of that fall from Wendell Moore Jr. My gosh. It, I mean, it looked it looked bad and it could have ended badly like it's it's. um uh, fortunate that Wendell was not seriously injured because he could have yeah. been, but that's that's where I think you got to be careful with the wording. Was it a reckless play? Yes. Was it a dangerous play? Yes. Was it a dirty play? 
you know, I'm not going to argue about it with people for, you know, hours, but it didn't, it didn't, after I read his apology and watched it to look for what he said, it looked like what he said. And so I don't know how, you know, as of this moment, the ACC hasn't announced anything. Clemson hasn't announced anything. I don't know how it will ultimately be handled, but if I were in charge of handling it, I'd say it happened. Everybody's okay. That, that I think that matters too. Everybody's yeah, okay. Yeah. Everybody's okay. Um, he apologized. The apology makes sense. He doesn't have a history of a dirty player. Let's let it. Let's let it end right here. Yeah. You know, hopefully right. this if, is. If, yeah. If Wendell Moore had to miss two games because of this, I could see. You know, maybe it being appropriate for Brownell to you know sit Collins for the however many games that. Wendell Moore had to miss due to a lower back contusion or something. But, you know, like you said, thankfully that's not what we're dealing with here. The fact that he was able to bounce back and, and resume playing in that game after a fall like that was a, t- a testament to the human body for sure. Yeah. So um, we'll, we'll see where that story goes. But um, from my perspective, the story shouldn't go anywhere from here. It should be over. Before we get to the final four and one, we're going to update you on the Naismith watch list. As I told you last week, we're going to be doing a Naismith watch segment presented by Jersey Mike's every Friday where we'll give you our top three candidates in this moment for Naismith National Player of the Year. David, I'll let you go first. If you were submitting a Naismith ballot today, what three names would you put at the top of your list? Well, after we spent the first, what, you know, 15 minutes or so just ragging uh, Purdue, um, I'm going to go Jaden Ivey, uh, number one uh on my ballot uh you know he's just there's nobody like him in college basketball he makes winning plays all the time for a team that yes as we've discussed has its flaws but that a team that as of this moment is the top five team um and if i were voting on it now i mean he would be the guy uh i'm kind of leaning towards wanting to see a guard win it this year because I mean, the last three have been uh garza uh, obi toppin and, and zion williamson all, all three, you know, deserving winners. But actually, you go back the last time a guard won it, it was uh, Jalen Brunson, the year that Villanova won the national title. Um, and so for that reason, uh, my number two is Ochai Agbaji. Um, And I know he's had some moments where he's kind of disappeared offensively in the last couple of weeks, but he's still he's reached double figures in every game this season. And Kansas is a team that could maybe win the national championship, and he's a superstar for that team. So, uh, you know, I've got Kofi Coburn and Johnny Davis and Drew Timmy rounding out my top five, but I would probably go Ivy and uh, Agbaji as my, my top two right now. It's interesting because last week I made the point that I don't think the, there's a clear-cut favorite. Like, uh, sometimes by February, it is obvious who everybody should be voting National Player of the Year if the vote were happening in this moment. Zion Williamson was that. I think Luca Garza was probably that. Um, I don't think we have that guy this season. Evidence being that your top two aren't even in my top three. And it doesn't mean that your top two are crazy. It just means that there's not an obvious favorite at this point. Um, And there's a lot of of candidates. Um, Jaden Ivey, Ochayabaji, Kofi Coburn. um, Leaky Black. Leaky Black, you know, is is a, an incredible perimeter defender, and, and probably should uh, that should be taken into account when you're discussing National Player of the Year candidates. Um, but my top three 
um, aren't any of those players. Uh, my number one right now remains Oscar Sheepley. He's averaging at Kentucky 15.9 points and 15.1 rebounds um, in 30.3 minutes per game for a team. I've got ranked third in the top 25 and one. So he's a statistical monster on a legitimate national title contender. He got 18 and 14 earlier this week at South Carolina. He's now number one in defensive rebounding percentage. And this surprised me because he has been number one in offensive rebounding percentage as well for much of the season, but he's now number two in offensive rebounding percentage. Trivia time. Which player is now ranked number one in offensive rebounding percentage according to Ken Pomp? Uh, Zach Eady. He's, uh, I think, third. He's up there pretty high. David McCormick at Kansas is at 19.7%. Shibwe is at 19.4%. So he's not number one in both anymore, but he's number one in one and number two in the other. He's an incredible, um, incredible rebounder. So he would be my leader right now, but not by a wide margin. And um, and it, like, there's a scenario where he might not even be in my top three next Friday, depending on how the next week unfolds. But right now, I would keep him where I had him last week, which is number one. My number two, Johnny Davis at Wisconsin. He's averaging 20.8 points, 8.2 rebounds, 2.5 assists for a team I got ranked eighth in the top 25 and one. Patrick Herb, who is the director of brand strategy at Wisconsin, been working in the Wisconsin Athletic Department for a long time, like terrific guy, um, great to work with. He sent a note along um, and had some really interesting statistical stuff connected to Johnny Davis. Um, Wisconsin has played seven games this season against teams that at the time of the game were ranked in the top 25 of the AP poll. And in those games, Johnny Davis is averaging 25.3 points, 8.6 rebounds. So he's, you know, really playing incredibly well against the best competition in Wisconsin's three biggest wins. So that's at Purdue against Houston out in Las Vegas and at Michigan. Johnny Davis was phenomenal. He had 37 points against Purdue, 30 against Houston, 25 um, at Michigan. And just for some context here, um, you know, the, some of the other player of the year candidates that we've mentioned in, in, in games like this, so games against top 25 teams. Again, Johnny Davis is averaging 25.3 points, 8.6 rebounds. And Wisconsin has a 4-3 and three record in those games. Oche Abadji is averaging 20.8 points. And that's second most among the player of the year candidates in these types of games. And Kansas is 3-3 three and three in those games. Drew Timmy is averaging 20.4 points, 6.8 rebounds. Gonzaga is 3-2 and two in those games. Uh, Kofi Coburn is averaging 19.5 and 9.3. That's that's good. Illinois is one in three against top 25 teams. Jay Nivey, 18.7, 5.8. Purdue is five and one in those games. And then Oscar Shibwe, uh, 13.4 points, 14.6 rebounds, but Kentucky's only two and three in those games. So Johnny Davis is averaging nearly five points better than any other legitimate national player of the year candidate when playing against top 25 teams. So if you're somebody who likes, and for me, play, national player of the year comes down largely to uh, you got to be a great player and you got to be on a, a good enough team 
Like, you know, if you're ranked 47th at Ken Palm, I don't really care what you're doing. You can be an All-American, but you're not going to be the National Player of the Year. Um, you know, you've got to be uh, statistically good or great. You've got to be on a good enough team. And if you want to add to that somebody who does it when the lights are on, somebody who does it against the best competition, if that is something that matters to you as a voter, well, then Johnny Davis is um, is the best so far this season, you know, when it comes to playing against other top 25 level schools. So I've got one Oscar Chibwe, two Johnny Davis, and then third, and this is a new addition to my list, Chet Holmgren at Gonzaga. He's now averaging 14.6 points, 9.1 rebounds, 3.3 blocks in 25.5 minutes per game for a team that I now have ranked number one in the top 25 and one. He's shooting 64.5% from the field, 46.5% from three. His true shooting percentage is now up to 74.1. And I saw this from Jared uh, Burson, who's a researcher at ESPN, who's a terrific follow, by the way, on Twitter, if because he's got just... Every night, just wild statistical stuff, um, historic uh, historical context for what we're watching. Um, like I, I grab a lot of his notes and use them, which is why I wanted to give him credit. I'm not stealing from him. I'm just borrowing. Um, again, Jared Burson, it, it, a researcher for ESPN. It, it, these, everything I'm about to tell you is stuff that I've read from his Twitter feed. But if... Chet Holmgren were to finish the season at 74.1 true shooting percentage. It would be the second highest true shooting percentage by a division one player in the past 30 seasons. I mean, we don't see stuff like this. Now what's interesting is that what I just said is true, but there is a player who has a better true shooting percentage in college basketball this season. It's a uh, Keller Boothby at Cornell who has a true shooting percentage right now of 76.6. So shouts to Keller Boothby. <laughs> Uh, but Chet Holmgren is having a historically, statistically historically great season. Here's another. Gary, one. What does Keller What does Keller Boothby have to do to to get on your on your top five for for next week? You know what? I had never heard of Keller Boothby until about ninety minutes ago <laughs> when I was prepping for this. But now he's on my radar, so I'm going to keep track. I, I, I want to see I want to see Keller and Leaky Black get a little more love. Okay. Keller Booth Keller Boothby is a type of player. How about this? If Keller Boothby finishes a season with a better true shooting percentage than Chet Holmgren. He is under, under consideration for a lifetime shout out on the Ion College Basketball Podcast. That's the, that's the race I don't think people have been paying enough attention to this season. The Chet Holmgren, Keller Boothby true shooting percentage race that is happening. That's unfolding a little, a little off the radar, but it's on my radar now. Is this an addition potentially, or is this is this at the peril of Leaky Black or Devin Downer? No, 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 no. I, I think once you get added to a, a consistent shout-out on the Ion College Basketball Podcast, you are not replaced unless you disrespect us the way Terry Teagle once did. People sometimes ask, why does Terry Teagle not get the shout-out at the end anymore? And it is because somebody sent us an interview that, that – Somebody did with Terry Teagle, the Baylor legend. And they, they said to him, so you get a shout out on the Ion College Basketball Podcast, CBS Sports, every episode. Did you realize that? And he said, no. 
He acted like he, he acted like he didn't know who we are. In fairness, he might not know who we are. Okay, <laughs> that's fair. I understand, but I took it. I took that as Michael Jordan might say. I took that personally, and so I, I'm not going to shout out Terry Teagle anymore um, uh, because he publicly said he didn't even know that we existed. I, I, I found that to be disrespectful and insulting. So now, instead of Terry, Te- Terry Teagle has been replaced, but um, he's been replaced by a different Baylor player every episode. I have a list of, I have the entire list of everybody who's ever played basketball at Baylor. And so instead of Terry Teagle, we just shout out another Baylor player at the end of every episode. So, so if, that's if, that. Yeah. So if Keller Boothby finishes the season with a better true shooting percentage than Chet Holmgren and doesn't do anything crazy, like, like speak ill of the Drew family or something like <laughs> that's that. Right. That's right. Then, then he'll be, you know, uh, it, commemorated it, henceforth. There's no question. If this is, I give you my word. I don't always keep my word, but I'm going to try my best to keep it here. Keller Boothby finishes with a better true shooting percentage than Chet Holmgren and acknowledges our existence. He will get a permanent shout out on the Ion College Basketball Podcast. Uh, Back to Holmgren. Another little thing Jared Burson tweeted, uh, you know, at some point in the past week or so. Chet had a four-game stretch recently where he averaged 19.5 points, 10.3 rebounds, three three-pointers per game, and three blocks per game over a four-game stretch. And that made him the first Division One player to average at least 15 points, 10 rebounds, three blocks, and three three-pointers in a four-game span in the last decade. Again, with Holmgren, um, he, he's figured it out, yeah. and, and he is doing things that are, you know, obviously uncommon. And, you know, we were in studio – Wednesday night, uh, uh, Inside College Basketball um, on CBS Sports Network, and Adam Zucker, you know, asked me if Drew Timmy was still a, you know, legitimate National Player of the Year candidate. And I said, well, of course, um, he's been terrific, but he might not be the best National Player of the Year candidate on his own team anymore. Um, it might actually be Chet Holmgren. In my eyes right now, if I were picking one Gonzaga player to be National Player of the Year, I'd probably go, I'd probably have to go with Chet Holmgren. Yeah, I mean, I think you can make the case that the two most important players in the country are Chet Holmgren and Walker Kessler, because those two players change the ceilings of what their teams can accomplish. Because if you go and look at Auburn as a defensive team with Walker Kessler versus Auburn as a defensive team without him, it's a massive difference. And it's the same with Gonzaga. And so I think in the end, you know, maybe the Naismith voters would side more with Timmy in, in some ways as a lifetime achievement award. Mm-hmm. And due to the points per game average likely being higher when it's all said and done than Holmgren's is. But I'm not going to argue with you um, on the importance of, of Chet Holmgren. And I think some people are going to discount some of these these statistics that you're throwing out and some of these observations that you've made. And they're going to point to the caliber of competition as, as the reason why it shouldn't be you know, we shouldn't be touting Chet Holmgren's improvement, but I'm on board with the fact that I think he's figuring it out. And I think that will be evident when they reemerge, you know, from WCC play and whoever they play in the second round of the NCAA tournament in their first game against a, you know, real legitimate team in a while, no offense, St. Mary's or San Francisco. um, I think that 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 improvement will be on display because I think it'll be a different Chet Holmgren than, than the one we saw against, Alabama and Texas Tech and, and those other teams they played. In it is a fact that he is doing it against West Coast Conference competition. Like I can't, there's no other side to that. It's true. He is doing it against West Coast Conference competition. 
But like BYU's good, and he yeah, and and he's he's doing this against you know the good West Coast Conference teams as well. Um, would he do exactly this in the Big Ten? I don't know, but I think he'd be great anywhere. Obviously, yeah. I think he'd be great anywhere. And either way, the point remains the same. Um, you know, good players play in bad leagues all the time in college basketball. Great players play in bad leagues all the time in college basketball. And the West Coast Conference ain't as bad as it um, probably is perceived. There's some there's some good teams in that league. They're going to get, you know, maybe three or four teams in the NCAA tournament. Um, you know, he he's the fact that he's doing things that have never been done in a decade or by any division one player or things that have only been done by one other player in the past 30 seasons. When you're doing historically great stuff like that, um, you know, it, it means you're special and he is um, so clearly uh, special uh, in what is going to be his one season uh, of college basketball. Matt Norlander, by the way, has got a, a nice piece up on Chet Holmgren right now. If you haven't seen it, I believe it posted on Thursday. You could find it at uh, cbssports.com. Before we get to the final four and one, uh, let me ask you a question. Are your go-to game day foods feeling uninspired? Next time, skip the usual suspects and order Jersey Mike's. The Jersey Mike's, they make every sub to order with premium fresh sliced meat and cheesesteaks are cooked on a flat top grill. Download their app for delivery, curbside, or in-store pickup. Jersey Mike's is a proud sponsor of the Naismith Award and a proud maker of a sub above. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, it's time for the final four and one which David Cobb is actually the king of this season. Nada, please unmute yourself and update us on the records. Well, GP, I know you're a Mets fan, yep. so, so you're going to understand this really well. Mm-hmm. You're kind of like you're coming down the stretch, and you're kind of falling apart at the wheels. <laughs> it's 26 and 31. Norlander <sighs> is 34 and 23. And then David Cobb, who's not going to be caught on win percentage anytime soon, is 6 and 2. Oh, man, I'm, I'm in trouble this week. I mean, I'm in trouble every week, but looks like I'm especially in trouble this week. Game one, Saturday, noon Eastern, number 20, Texas, at number 10, Baylor, inside the Hook the Dog Center. Kim Palm has it, Baylor minus five. You can watch it on ESPN2. Give me Baylor. Uh so I know Texas is, is, is riding high. They've, they've had some, some big wins recently. I think they won five out of six with the only loss being that crazy game at Texas Tech. Uh, but I think Baylor is, is starting to figure some things out here. I think if LJ Cryer comes back, I'll feel a lot more confident about this pick. But, you know, even without him, um, 
I think this is a spot where uh, where Baylor Baylor will uh, emerge and start to look like the national title contender we thought it was a few weeks ago, and the number one team we thought it was a few weeks ago. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 as of this moment, we do not know whether LJ Cryer will play. He's been like a game time decision, you know, multiple games now, and has not played. Um, you know, Baylor, of course, last weekend got blasted by Kansas. Bounced back pretty well and and won by 15 at Kansas State. And I know Kansas State isn't great, so you might be dismissive of that. But Kansas State has played seven games this season decided by one, two, or three points. So three or fewer points. And they're two and five in those games. Like, if you take those games, and, like, Bruce Weber is in an important year at KSU, obviously. And... Man, it's just wild to me sometimes to think about how thin the margins are between you're coming back next season to coach again, or you maybe not. Two and five in games decided by three or fewer, you know, fewer points. And if you take those, that t- the two and five record and make it five and two, which is like all you got to do to do it is get, get a stop here, make a shot there. Get a stop here, make a shot there. The game is different. Outcomes different. You take that two and five, flip it into five and two, and Kansas State's a projected NCAA tournament team right now. As it is, um, you know they're one of the you know they're they're you know um, struggling and sitting here um, with a four and seven record in league play. Uh, they're twelve and eleven overall. But my point is this: um, it, it might not seem like it's some grand achievement to go to Kansas State and win. And to be clear, it's not like going to Kansas and winning or going to Auburn and winning, but that was a nice win. You know, Kansas State isn't as bad as it records suggest. I guess that's the point I would make. And for Baylor to go in there shorthanded and win by 15, I thought was impressive. Um, Texas is quietly starting to figure this thing out, too. Um, We talked about Michigan earlier in the show about how they got off to a not so great start. And now they start seem to be figuring it out with a lot of new pieces. Texas, same thing. Um, six and one. I mean, uh, five and one in the past six games. Lone loss in that stretch was that wild and weird game at Texas Tech. You know, the Longhorns are now up to 14th at Ken Palm. So that's a team that when they lost three of four in January, um, including losses to Oklahoma State and Kansas State, you were like, okay, maybe this just isn't going to be a really great year in year one with Chris Beard, but now they're obviously trending in the right direction. Um, They've been playing a lot better than they were in January. And I'll take them to cover this number um, at Baylor. I I don't think they win the game, but given that they've been playing better, Baylor has been a little up and down. They were Baylor was four and four in its previous eight before the win at Kansas State, and the uncertainty of L.J. Cryer. Um, I'll take Texas plus the points in this one. Game two, Saturday, 3.30 p.m. Eastern, Memphis at number six, Houston, inside the Hakeem Olajuwon Center. Kimpom has it, Houston minus 13. You can watch it on ABC. Gary, do you ever feel like uh, you're living in deja vu when you do radio in Memphis in the afternoons and you're having this conversation year after year where it's, well, you know, if Memphis beats Houston, 
it'll really help their at-large resume. And I think that, you know, they'll have a shot. It just seems like, was oh, this that, three like, years in a row now we've had well, this conversation? Well, Penny Hardaway made this point, you know, earlier this week, I guess uh, after the win over Tulane. He said, we're in the same spot we were last last season. We're just on the wrong side of the bubble, and now we're headed to Houston. And, like, if we can, if we can get this win, it might push us to the right side of the bubble. Yeah. Um, it, it is very deja vu like, um, you know, obviously, you know, it's 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 one thing to say all we got to do is win at Houston. It's another thing to go actually win at Houston. Right. But, you know, we talked about Michigan being disappointing and figuring some things out. Memphis, very disappointing, but they've won four straight games now. And more important than that, they're mostly healthy. DeAndre Williams is back. Jalen Duran is back. Landers Nolly is back. And. You know, they're operating at a different level now. They they beat UCF by 28 points over the weekend and then beat Tulane by 11. So they're uh, I'm not saying they're ever going to be what they were expected to be in the preseason, but they're, you know, if they've been off your radar a little bit, they are playing better right now, largely because they're they're healthy right now. Sure. And that's that is absolutely the correct narrative that Memphis needs to pound home, which Penny Hardaway did quite uh, effectively a few weeks ago talking about the injured players being missing because in this year, especially with the COVID, you know, guys missing games, protocols, the selection committee has a lot to sift through with some of these uh, teams that were missing players for certain key games and all that. And if you can wage an effective enough marketing campaign um, to make them have to acknowledge that in their selections, I think it will help your case. Um, Anyway, as it pertains to this game, uh, I don't know that I can see Memphis going on the road and, and beating Houston. What's the what's the number? What are we looking at, at with this? Uh, Houston minus thirteen. Oh, wow! That's a big number. Golly, I mean, I was pretty comfortable going uh, Houston. Oh, oh, by the way, I don't I don't think when when the number post, I don't think it'll be that big because it'll 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 it'll. it'll It'll, it'll it'll probably still be eleven or something like that. I don't think it'll be thirteen because Memphis's Memphis's computer numbers are goofy because they lost so many games when they didn't have right. players, and yeah. now everybody except Amani Bates, I believe, is is back. And you could reasonably argue that they're um, that they're better without him, right? Okay, so when I make this pick. Will I be judged based on 13 or will I be judged on what Vegas says tomorrow? We always base it off of whatever we said on this show. So the official line for the Island College Basketball Podcast for the final four and one is Houston minus 13. Okay. You know, I am the final four and one leader, so I need you to are? be sure of these things. Um, all right. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go Memphis uh, against the spread. Um, I think they'll cover 13, but I think Houston will win the game. I think that's right. Uh, I think Memphis. I think Memphis will compete with them. Houston, obviously, coming off of a loss at SMU, eighty-five, eighty-three. They were up fifteen at one point, lost by two. Twelve-game winning streak snapped. Um, I, I think most people uh, know that Houston lost two of its top four players the week before Christmas. Marcus Sasser, who's their best player, and Tremont Mark out for the season, and it had never showed up. Houston just kept killing everybody. Uh, but then they got caught by a, a pretty good, not not great, but pretty good SMU team. I mean, if uh, you're going to take an L in the AAC on the road at, at SMU is a somewhat respectable place to do it. No question. And so, um, you know, Houston now has a league loss. Um, but I, I still think it's good. I just had I had always wondered, like, when will it show up that – and I don't say this just about Houston. I made this point um, on an earlier podcast. Like, I don't care who you are, Duke, Kentucky – Gonzaga, take two of your top four off your team. You're not the same team. 
Like, imagine if if uh, Gonzaga lost Drew Timmy and Andrew Nimhard, or if Kentucky lost Oscar Shebway and Keon Brooks. I mean, you're not the same team. But Houston had largely looked like the same team. Um, you know, Josh Carlton had stepped up. They had hardly largely looked like the same team without Sasser and Mark. But you know, if it, it perhaps what we saw at SMU was just hey, it's just one game, no big deal. Houston would get re- right back to smacking everybody around um, ASAP. But um, you know, it, they looked like a team maybe missing a piece or two uh, at SMU as they squandered that 15 point lead. Uh, you mentioned the committee going to have to sift through all of this data. Well, you know, um, Tennessee lost this game, but Kennedy Chandler wasn't available. Um, uh, you know, this school lost these games, but this player wasn't available. You know, Hey, remember when Baylor went through this stretch here, LJ Cryer wasn't playing. He's their best player. Well, the best player at Memphis, I guess you could argue it's, either Jalen Duran or DeAndre Williams. Like you could you could debate that if you wanted to. But certainly DeAndre Williams is one of the top two players at Memphis. He wasn't a heralded high school recruit like Jalen Duran, Amani Bates. Um he's not a household name, but he's a really good college basketball player. 25 years old, by the way. Um well Memphis is 10 and four with him, just three and four without him. I don't know what the committee's going to do with that. Um but Memphis has been you know, pretty good with him um, and really bad without him. He's available now. And like I mentioned, Memphis is 2-0 and in its uh, past two games. Those wins coming by a combined 39 points. So uh, I'll take Memphis plus the points, but I do think Houston wins the game. Game three, Saturday, 10 p.m. Eastern, number 22, St. Mary's, at number two, Gonzaga, inside the Dan Dickow Athletic Center, Ken Palm has it. Gonzaga minus 14. You can watch it on ESPN two. Uh, yeah, I'm going Gonzaga straight up and to cover. Look, everybody wants you to believe the WCC is having some Renaissance season and that it's <laughs> deeper than ever. And that Gonzaga is not the only team that can win a game in the NCAA tournament from that conference. But all I'm saying is that if that's true, St. Mary's better show it on Saturday because I'm not buying it. I mean, Gonzaga is eight. zero in the league. They've won seven of those eight games by 25 points or more. And the only one they didn't win by 25 or more was they, uh, they beat San Francisco by 16 in a game that was played at a really slow pace. So I, I get it. St. Mary's is ranked. Everybody wants the WCC to be better than it is. Like maybe Gonzaga puts some of that narrative out, narrative out there itself. Uh, but the Zags are going to win this one comfortably. I got them winning it by about 25. I mean, they've won five straight games by at least 30. Yeah. I mean, that's outrageous. Um, they're now up to second in offensive efficiency, eighth in defensive efficiency. They're first in effective field goal percentage, first in two-point field goal percentage. You know, obviously, that's the benefit of having Drew Timmy and Chet Holmgren. They're awesome. Again, you know, uh, earlier in the weekend studio, it was like, is this the year Gonzaga wins the national championship? And I'm like, you know, we'll see. I don't know, but they are once again good enough to do it. That's the thing that I think the anti-Gonzaga um, crowd uh, like can't grasp is that just because they haven't won a national championship doesn't mean they can't. They could already have, if we play the NCAA tournament in 2020, theoretically they could already have three national championships. 
Um, I mean, they were in it in the final minutes against North Carolina. They had one of the best teams in 2020. If you want to say they were never winning last season because Baylor was just going to destroy them every time, fine. I'm not going to argue that. But Mark Few could be a two-time national championship coach right now if you just play that North Carolina game out um, from that from the moment it's a one possession game. It's tied with a few minutes to go. Let's play that game ten times, see what happens. Carolina probably wins five of them. Gonzaga wins five of them. Just the one that counted, the only one they did. Uh, it went Carolina's way. And this is another example of a team that's um, got a chance they're, you know, to win the national championship. And I don't mean just has a chance like, well, you know, it's a it's a single elimination tournament. Everybody has a chance. No, everybody doesn't have a chance. I mean, everybody's in the bracket. Um, you know, at, at least 55 of those teams have no realistic chance to win the national championship. Gonzaga does. The adjusted efficiency margin at Kimpom is now up to plus 34.66. That's higher than what Baylor's was last season after Baylor won the national championship. And it's uh, more than five points better than anybody else in the country right now. So, yeah, if the Zags are out there slapping around BYU and San Francisco and everybody else they play, I'm going to assume they do the same thing to St. Mary's on it's Saturday really night. St. Mary's isn't, isn't countering with with a Keller Boothby who has a similar true <laughs> shooting exactly, percentage. That's exactly right. Trivia time. Trivia time. Okay. Uh, Keller Boothby, Gary, he attended Prest, uh, Prestonwood Christian Academy in Plano, Texas for high school. Mm-hmm. What current NBA All-Star also attended Prestonwood Christian Academy? NBA All-Star. In Plano, well, Texas. I, I actually can't say for sure if he is this year, but he's been one. He's been an all-star. Very, very recently, yeah. Mm. I'm trying to think of players from the Dallas area who are great in the NBA. I'm, I'm completely blanking. I don't even have a guess for you. <laughs> Apparently, Julius Randle went there, too. Julius Randle <laughs> went to school there. Julius Randle, by the way, definitely not an all-star this season, but okay. he but he yeah. has been one. He's been bad this season, but he uh, he has been an all-star. But, uh, okay, so Keller Boothby and Julius Randle both went to the same high school. Not Indeed. sure I would have guessed that. but Yeah, that, but, that's uh, me a real GM. I, I looked <laughs> that up while you were, you were talking about something. <laughs> okay, yeah, like put Ke- Keller Boothby on the St. Mary's roster. Now we got a different conversation, as it is. Yeah, I'll take Gonzaga and lay the 14 points. Game four. Yeah, imagine – yeah, imagine being back at uh, at Prestonwood, you know, over the summer, and your Keller Boothby and Julius Randall walks in to get some reps, you know, and, <laughs> and then and then you got to stick that guy in, in some pickup. That that, that does that'd Julius Randall right now have any idea who Keller Boothby is? <laughs> if he's a listener to the pod, he does. Yeah. I'm going to say probably not. Game four, Saturday, 10 p.m. Eastern, number 12, UCLA at number 21, USC, inside the O.J. Mayo Center. Kim Palm has it, UCLA minus three. You can watch it on ESPN. Yeah, I'm going UCLA. Wait, minus three? Yeah, okay. I'm going uh, I'm going UCLA. Uh, I understand that UCLA is not its best self right now. Um, had a couple of bad losses within the last week or so. Uh, not, not, not that losing to Arizona is a bad loss, but losing to Arizona state definitely is, uh, USC though. I don't necessarily believe in, um, and you know, I think the PAC 12 is, is very mediocre and anyway, UCLA, I think is just better. I don't think that there's going to be some massive home court advantage with the cross town, you know, setup and whatnot for USC. So 
Uh, UCLA, I think, wins this game by, by six or seven. Yeah, USC is ranked right now. Um, I don't have them in the top 25 and one. Like, they have good computer numbers, but what have they done? Who have they beaten? Yeah. I mean, their best win is San Diego State, and that's a good win. But, like, USC sitting here one and one in quadrant one. Like, they, they've got good computer numbers, and it's totally reasonable to rank them if you want to. That wouldn't be where I would devote a Politex column if I were writing one. But they've got as many losses in quadrant three as they do in quadrant one. Um, I, I'm not saying the team's not good. I'm just saying the team hasn't done much. Our, our perception, the national perception of USC was artificially inflated by their weak schedule to start out with because because they were coming in off a pretty good NCAA tournament run because Isaiah Mobley was a player people remembered who was putting up numbers you know they, they were able to rise into the top 10 on you know on the heels of an easy schedule um, and now I think they've just been exposed a little bit and and I think they're going to make the NCAA tournament but I don't think they're much of a threat yeah they started 13 and 0 so it's like, well, they they were, you know, they were supposed to be good and they're 13 and 0 and they kept moving up the rankings and moving up the rankings. And then they lost to Stanford, beat Oregon State, lose to Oregon. You know, they, they've lost to Stanford twice now. Like maybe that should be a rule. You can't lose to Stanford twice in the same season and be ranked in the AP poll. P- period. That's like a stipulation. Um, you know, they went to Arizona, lost by 9. They um they were in a game with Pacific earlier this week. Now, Isaiah Mobley didn't play, and that's to, you know, that, that perhaps that accounts for that. But, yeah, I just don't know. I, I, I don't – they're good. I just don't know if they're as good as they've been perceived to be this season. I don't know if they're as good as the number beside their name suggests they are. I'll take UCLA minus the three. You're in charge of game five. What we got? Yeah, going to Indiana, Michigan State, uh, a couple of teams that really, really, really need a need a dub here. Um, get, let me let me check out this Ken Palm line real quick. I think it is Indiana minus four. So that's interesting. No, no, no. It's Michigan State minus four. That makes a lot more sense uh, because Michigan State is the home team in this game. So Michigan State minus four at home against an Indiana team that you know. Uh, who, who's playing for them? I mean, I think those five guys who were suspended are back, but they are back. They have been reinstated. And and by the way, Mike Woodson um, seemed to suggest that the reason they were suspended was because they blew curfew. And... Yeah, but he didn't come out and straight up say that they were going to like return to their on court roles. He kind of was ambiguous about like if they were going to be immediately part of the of the rotation or play their their same minutes, you know. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we'll we'll see. The game by the way tips at 3:30 Eastern uh on Saturday. It's going to be on Fox. Um yeah, we'll, we'll see who plays and how much, but I, I I my understanding is they're available. And um I I I thought I thought it was noteworthy if this really is just a blown curfew like to take five players out of your off your roster for a, a, a game, I guess it was at Northwestern, that you need as it pertains to your NCAA tournament resume. Like, I think that says something about Mike Woodson that I don't think is often attached to quote-unquote NBA guys. Because sometimes when an NBA coach, you know, finds himself coaching college basketball, one of the things you'll hear, not, not 100% of the time, but 
but often is they don't care about academic stuff. They don't care about any of the stuff that some college coaches really do seem to care about. They're just basketball coaches. You know, they don't, they didn't, uh, they're not trying to turn uh, boys into young men or whatever that cliche is. They're just, you know, they're just coaching their basketball team the way they've coached their basketball team at the professional level. My point being for a first year college coach to actually suspend five players for curfew, if, if it is actually curfew, um, I don't want to say it's impressive because I don't even know what that means. I just, I, it, it, it stood out to me. Like, I, like, I don't know if I would have done it, you know, given where my season is at right now and what my fans want from me. And, and that, you know, it, it's February and every game is important. I don't know. I just thought it said something about Mike Woodson. And I think probably something positive about Mike Woodson. Yeah, I was uh, surprised. I mean, two starters, uh, it was Xavier Johnson and Parker Stewart, both, both starters who were among that, that five, two other guys who were role players. And then Christian Lander, who sometimes plays, he was, he was among that group as well. So yeah, definitely a bold move. Uh, I'm going. I'm going. Uh, Michigan State. I don't think they're going to uh, lose consecutive home games. I think you know uh, they've struggled recently. They, they've kind of they're kind of in this spot right now where their legitimacy is in question. Um, they're do, doing a reverse ISO where they're they're seeming to backslide um, as we get deeper into the season. And I don't know that that. I just don't think that's going to continue. I think. I think they're going to get it done at home here. And I think there's some questions, I mean, just for me about this situation with Indiana, where I don't know that I fully trust the best version of Indiana to show up in the first game after this uh, suspension situation. So I'm going Sparty. Yeah. Um, Indiana's lost two straight. Michigan State, um, as you noted, has also lost two straight. This is important for both teams. Yeah. Um, I, You know what? I'll take Indiana plus the points. Um, I think Michigan State wins the game, but I think it, it'll, it'll be a competitive game pretty much from start to finish. And I don't guess I'd be shocked if Indiana went to the Breslin Center and won, given that, you know, we just watched Illinois um, or uh, I mean, we just watched um, Wisconsin go to the Breslin Center and, and win. Um, so I'll take Indiana uh, plus the points and then. By Saturday afternoon, we'll, we'll know for sure. Either the internet will be working perfectly throughout the state or they'll be having, uh, you know, bandwidth problems again. It's, yeah. it's tough to tell. And uh, David Cobb will have an even wider lead in, in the final <laughs> four and one. Whew. You are wearing us out in the final four and one. Thank you for being here. I appreciate it. It's always good uh, when, when – uh, not good when Norlander's away. I don't mean it that way. But uh, it's nice to have somebody uh, reliable and, uh, and, and, and of quality uh, to sit in that, in that other box across from me. So uh, I, I appreciate that, that means a lot, Gary. You know, people need to know uh, how important you are. I heard, um, I heard you guys talking with Sam Vecini a couple weeks ago. And and Sam was just lavishing you with praise for the mm. fact that he's that you know that he was once employed by by CBS and, and I need to give you a similar shout out too. I mean I was like man I you know uh, Gary needs needs some love because uh, you know I, I hit you up uh, a couple of years ago I was like hey what do you know about this and uh, you know you didn't even know me that well I mean I've been on your show a handful of times and obviously we ran in the Memphis media market and you. Uh, you uh, you put in a word, got my resume to the top of of, of a pile somewhere, and, and here we here we are. So, so I appreciate you. No, well, uh, you're welcome. Um, um, you know, 
I, I didn't know you too well, but I knew your work. And for these purposes, that's what I needed to know. I was like, you know, this is because um, like your your background is vastly different than, say, Sam Vecini's background. Sam Vecini, you know, had never worked at a traditional newspaper, never been on a beat. He's awesome. But like you guys come from totally different places. And I just remember um, when we had an opening reaching out, you know, after after you know, being in contact with you, reaching out to the bosses. And I actually said, hey, this guy lives in Memphis. I don't know if you want another guy who lives in Memphis, Like, <laughs> you know, but 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 um, but he's good. And I bet you you're not going to have a more qualified candidate than than David. So just take a look at it and then you guys take it from here. Um, so I'm not going to take credit for hiring you because I didn't do that. I don't have that kind of power, but um, I did endorse. I did endorse you. And I'm glad I did, because otherwise I have no idea who I'd be talking to right now. Yeah. And, and you know, you wouldn't know that Julius Randall and Keller Boothby attended the same <laughs> high school. I tell you, that's not something Norlander would have come with. It's not something Deadleg <laughs> would have had for me. Shouts to Devin Dowdy. Shouts to Chester, South Carolina. Shouts to Gary Franklin, legend. Shouts to Larnell. Thank you guys once again for listening to the Island College Basketball Podcast. In the middle of the dumbest pandemic of my lifetime, I swear to you, I've never seen one like this wild if you're not subscribed please go subscribe anywhere you subscribe to podcasts including apple Podcasts and spotify you can leave five stars at both please do that's very important and at apple you can actually leave a review like type some words and that's incredibly important too so if you if you got 45 seconds do that for us there's more of us than there are of them there's way more of us than there are of them if you're not subscribed to the youtube channel we've been begging you for months like come on already please subscribe to the YouTube channel. And while you're here, please smash that like button like your Brandon Davies. Brandon Davies would do it. He'd smash it. He'd risk everything to smash. You're not risking anything. So please do that. And we're going to talk to you again on not Sunday. Not Sunday. We're not going to talk to you again on Super Bowl Sunday. Deadleg was like, one option is we could do it after the Super Bowl. And I'm like, there's no scenario where I'm doing a podcast after the Super Bowl. What are you talking? What are you talking about? So we're going to talk to you again on Monday morning. I think we're going to try to go 10 a.m. Eastern on Monday morning, and we will recap the weekend then. So till then, take care. Yeah.